Hi, everyone. We've set up this Being an Engineer podcast as an industry knowledge repository, if you will. We hope it'll be a tool where engineers can learn about and connect with other companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. So make some connections and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Axel Krieger, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the Johns Hopkins University, where he leads a team of students, scientists, and engineers in the research and development of robotic tools and laparoscopic devices. A few of the projects he has led include the development of a surgical robot called the Smart Tissue Autonomous Robot, or STAR for short, and using 3D printing for surgical planning and patient-specific implants. Axel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, well, let's let's get started with the, uh, the same question I ask everyone in the beginning. What made you decide to become an engineer? Fantastic question. Um, for me, it was really yeah an affinity to math and physics and science classes in school. Uh, I grew up in Germany, and uh, there in the last two years in high school, you can really um, specialize in different courses and different classes. And I absolutely picked those science-y courses and realized that's really my passion and interest. Um, my dad was also an engineer, so that really helped, uh, you know, uh, clarify the picture for me a bit. And uh, that's when I then, uh, you know, chose to become an engineer. Neat. And uh, how long have you been in the U.S.? Um, I first came to the U.S. Uh, for an internship uh, back uh, right at the two, uh, right at 2000. You know, I was uh, studying in Germany and uh, did an internship with a German automotive company in South Carolina. Um, and that's where I met uh, uh, an awesome girlfriend and uh, who is now my wife. <laughs> oh, congratulations. <laughs> really uh, you know, good, good in, uh, incentive to, to stay in the U.S. Uh, so I went back, finished my degree, but, uh, you know, uh, we continued dating. And then I came back for doing research and, you know, for my Ph.D. Cool. Do you uh, travel back to Germany very often? Definitely. Yeah. Go, go, yeah. you know, once or twice a year and sometimes bring the family now. <laughs> have, uh, have you noticed at all if engineering in Germany is much different than engineering here in the States? Um, definitely in Germany, I had the feeling that it was very automotive focused. That's, you know, such a big, uh, you know, um, you know, a component of the industry there. And so, you know, studies ever a lot about automotive uh, <laughs> work. And so, yeah, I think a different focus here a, a bit, I, I feel. Yeah, that could be. All right. Well, let's see. Let's jump into the meat and potatoes here. Um, you uh, you helped develop the, the STAR robot, the, uh, the uh, smart tissue autonomous robot. And there was even a study recently published in, in Science Robotics. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the STAR robot and, and how does it work? Fantastic. Uh, yeah, we developed a smart tissue autonomous robot uh, for doing precision surgery. And recently we demonstrated the first autonomous keyhole surgery. Um, the actual surgery is called an anastomosis. So that's uh, 
reconnection of a tubular structure. So that's the clinical term anastomosis. Um, so we're working on bowel tissue. So imagine you have a colon uh, cancer surgery, for example. You take out the deceased uh, you know, tissue, and then you need to reconnect it together. And that is done with sutures. It takes, you know, really precision placement of about 20 sutures to leak, to create a leak-free uh, reconnection. It's a very critical, very difficult step um, of so many surgeries. And so that's what we've been focusing on. And in this recent study, we were uh, demonstrating autonomous, um, you know, suturing of uh, bowel tissue and not just with open surgery, so full access, but with keyhole surgery. So it's small tools, small cameras going into the body and doing that internally. That's amazing. Uh, you, you mentioned joining two cylinders. So, so we're basically connecting like a, a, an artery or something like that to two tubes. Exactly. Two tubes. Uh, so anastomosis is the general term for any reconnection of tubular structures. And in this instant, we've been working on bowel, so intestinal uh, tissue. So two halves of an intestine, they're connected end to end. So, you know, if you dissect them in the middle, take out tumor, uh, a section of the bowel with tumor, for example, then you uh, reconnect the healthy ends together end to end. I see. That is really interesting. Uh, how, what does the interface look like when the, the, the two ends, the free ends of, of those tubes are joined? Is, is it like they're each kind of flanged out and, and butt welded before they're sutured across that, that flange diameter? Or is it like one of the tubes, you kind of squeeze it so the diameter is a little smaller and then you tuck it into the ID of the adjacent tube and then you, kind of stitch circumferentially what what does that interface look like yeah a little bit of uh the the former uh so uh you that kind of naturally happens so you place a suture into you know both sides and then pull it together and the tissue deforms a little bit and butts against each other so you get mm. kind of like um you know you have like 20 sutures there so you get kind of a wavy pattern um, and sometimes the tissue goes a little bit to the outside. That's better than going to the inside because mm. then you reduce the, um, you know, diameter. So then, you know, bowel, uh, you know, stool could kind of like, you know, I see. Uh, get yeah. blocked. So you yeah. want it to kind of go to the outside and we call that to evert the tissue to go to the outside. So it becomes a bit of a baby, you know, uh, 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 a pattern, um, where you have tension on the sutures and then uh, no tension in between, but you need to uh, have it closed enough so you don't get any of the, you know, uh, leakage to the outside, which cause, of course, you know, huge potential issues. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So about 20 sutures or stitches to get it closed, leak-proof, sealed. And these these vessels are, I don't know, maybe what, like... Uh, uh, I don't know, three, four millimeters in diameter, something like that. They're a bit, a bit larger than that. You know, the small bowel is maybe around uh, 10 millimeters, something like 10, uh, 10, 12 millimeters in, in size. Got it. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I read this article, um, about the, the star robot and, and this laparoscopic surgery that uh, I guess your team or, or a team of surgeons had completed, not a team of surgeons, uh, the, the robot had completed autonomously on a pig and, and it was apparently very successful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so in this study, uh, we first uh, uh, compared our performance of our star robot to expert surgeons 
on phantom tissue. So phantom tissue means like just kind of silicone, plastic, you know, tissue. Yeah. And we did a comparison study uh, with expert surgeons and then also surgeons using the current state of the art in medical robotics, which is a Da Vinci robot. That's the type of robot where every motion of the robot is performed on a console. So there's no autonomy. It's basically, you know, uh, 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 an extension of the, the, the human hands. Um, and so we compared our autonomous robot to the current state of the art Da Vinci robot and to manual uh, surgery. And there we showed that uh, with our technology, uh, you know, with camera and, uh, you know, control and suturing tool together, uh, we can improve the consistency of the sutures. So the spacing is more even um, and we make fewer mistakes um, in manual surgery. Uh, what happens a lot is you, you uh, surgeon would place a needle inside, then not like where it ended up, pull it back out, you know? Ah. So that causes, of course, some, some injury. And we can really avoid that with our robotic technology and we can make it more precise. And so reduce the risk of, uh, complications and leakage. How, how does the robot know where to hold the, the, the bowel or the intestines and uh, how to suture and, and how to distinguish, um, you know, one tissue from, from another, another tissue? Um, yeah, so we, uh, the robot gets some help initially from uh, the surgeon to kind of set up uh, the tissue. So kind of, uh, you know, prepare the two ends. And um, uh, this is also done in, in manual surgery. There's something called stay sutures. So a suture that kind of holds the end open. Um, and uh, for our robot, we placed uh, these near-infrared uh, markers on the tissue corners. So that is uh, just with a syringe, uh, you know, a little blob of an infrared um, um, dye. Um, and the robot has a near infrared camera, detects those corners really robustly. Uh, it's also nice that it's immune to you know, blood or other occlusion. So it shines really brightly. And that allows us to uh, first do a suture plan. So we see the corners. Then we, of course, can, uh, with a 3D camera, um, we can, you know, measure the distance on the surface of the tissue. Um, we can, you know, divide that evenly to get really nice, even spacing. Um, so create plans for the surgeons. And we provided a couple plans to the surgeons with different spacings, different, you know, um, distribution of the sutures. Surgeon would say, okay, this one I like the best, uh, you know, approve that. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, you know, robot would go in and, and place one suture after another and use those markers also to make adjustments, you know, to, you know, to, to reactive deformation, to direct to motion, um, also to detect, uh, the breathing cycle. So we had to, you know, um, uh, uh, synchronize the motion of the robot with the breathing of the patient to be precise and really enter the, you know, uh, each suture at the right spot. I see. Okay. So let me see if I got the process down here. Uh, the, a surgeon will probably make the incision. Um, is there a trocar that's used? Exactly. So there are these little ports, uh, trocars that are placed. Um, absolutely. Um, so we used, um, you know, four of these trocars, uh, two were used for the robot and then two were used for, you know, cameras and, and just, you know, uh, you know, uh, looking at, uh, the, um, the surgery. Got it. Okay, so the surgeon creates an, a small incision, places the trocars, um, inserts the the robotic arm through the trocar, kind of stages the the vessels, the um, uh, 
and, and then applies uh, a marker on each of the free ends of, of uh, the the bowel. And then uh, at that point, it's it's up to the robot and it's fully autonomous at that point. Um, yeah, we call this uh, the process supervised autonomy. So we don't want to have, uh, you know, kind of replace the surgeon. So we like, uh, instead of having the surgeon do every step of the surgery, just kind of watch the robot and then intervene if something happens and, and, mm. and you know, could improve something. So, you know, we, we have a high degree of autonomy. You know, 83% of the times we didn't need any help from the surgeons, but every now and then, especially at, you know, really difficult to place sutures at the corners, we needed a bit of an assistance. Um, so, you know, it's not, uh, you know, fully autonomous, it's uh, supervised autonomous. Got it. Okay. It reminds me of a lot of the uh, autonomous vehicles out on the road right now that like Waymo or something where there's a someone in the, the driver's seat that can take over if needed, but otherwise the vehicle's doing all the driving. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a great analogy. And for us, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit like a park assist or so because some ah. portions are really still done manually, right? But then the anastomosis step is done, you know, in very high degree of autonomy. <laughs> cool. That's very neat. Okay. Um, the, the, the 3D machine vision that, that you mentioned, the cameras that are kind of watching and providing feedback to the robot, was this like an off the shelf vision system, like, like a Cognex thing or a Keyens thing or, or something? Or did you guys have to kind of build your own vision system to work with the robot? Yeah, we had to build our own vision system. There are really great 3D cameras, uh, for, you know, open surgery. So large cameras, you know, so when we started this project initially, we used a commercial, uh, light field camera, uh, from a company Ratrix in, in Germany. Uh, but with the newest uh, work, we needed to do a keyhole surgery. So we need a small little endoscope that goes in and, and uh, gets really good, precise 3D vision. And there's nothing on the market. Uh, so there we actually, uh, you know, teamed with an optics professor here, Johns Hopkins, uh, Jin Kang and his students and uh, built a custom uh, structured light uh, 3D camera. So wow. it sent out these uh, fringe patterns of lines uh, onto the surgical scene, um, has a CCD camera to detect the reflection of that, um, on the tissue and calculate uh, a 3D point cloud of the target scene. Huh. How long does the procedure take versus if it was done purely manually by, by a surgeon? I mean, at least that portion of it that's being done by the robot. Is it about the same or is one faster than the other? Um, we were about the same as uh, manual surgery. So um, I think we uh, wanted to be really safe <laughs> and, uh, you know, make sure we don't make any mistakes, make it easy for the operating surgeon to supervise. Uh, so we didn't run uh, the robot at kind of full speed capacity. You know, we can go much faster. But in this study, we were slightly slower than the, uh, than the surgeon doing this manually. Got it. So about the same speed, but, but you're getting superior results. That's right. That's right. And so, and I think this is something we could easily speed up in, in future studies. You know, we just wanted to do a really nice, uh, you know, demonstration of this and did not optimize for speed. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. What, uh, what led to the development of the star robot? Where, where did you guys start? What was the impetus? Um, yeah. Uh, in discussions with, uh, surgeons, um, you know, really, you know, kind of, 
you know, uh, going over uh, the current uh, state of the art, you know, what, what medical robots exist there. And we thought, you know, uh, that uh, robotics and autonomous robotics could really help in getting a more consistent result every time. You know, the idea there is that you can kind of democratize the access to the best results to everybody, you know, so it doesn't matter which hospital you go to, you know, who's your operating surgeon, how many thousands of procedures has that surgeon done, was it brand new from medical school, you know, like that, that's the idea to get really always the same results. Um, so in discussions with surgeons, we thought uh, this was uh, really needed and would bring the uh, whole field forward. Nice, nice. Uh, so you mentioned the Da Vinci robot a little while ago, and uh, we've actually had someone else on the show, Alison Peck, who worked on the development of uh, the Da Vinci robot, or, or at least one of the Da Vinci robots. Are they? Is the Star robot very different from Da Vinci, or are there, are there overlapping areas, or are they just you know very very separate uh, machines used for very different purposes? Yeah, the, uh, Da Vinci is really a groundbreaking, you know, medical robot. It's widely used, uh, you know, for uh, different uh, surgeries. For example, prostatectomy, taking out the prostate. It's now done like 90% of the time with, uh, with a, you know, a robot. <laughs> so, you know, really fantastic work, uh, you know. Um, but the, um, so, you know, some aspects of the camera are the same. Uh, some aspects of the tool are exactly the same of the robot, uh, you know, mechanical architecture. Um, the paradigm is just very different where, you know, the Da Vinci robot relies 100% on the operating surgeon to, you know, execute every motion of the robot. So it's really an extension of the robot's hands. That's how it's, you know, conceived. That's how it's, you know, regulated. That's how it's, you know, is, is, mm. is kind of the, the business model of it. Um, and for us, we thought we want to, you know, create the next generation of surgical robots where you have, you know, uh, like a self-driving car, like more autonomy and uh, then potentially, you know, more precision and uh, more consistency and better results. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so the, the Da Vinci is always driven by a surgeon, whereas the, the star, at least in the, the area in which it operates, it's fully autonomous. You just you push a button and it goes ahead and does its thing. You got it. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to take just a short break here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where they can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. And today we're speaking with Axel Krieger. Uh, Axel, an another thought I had as I was preparing for this interview was, do you foresee a future in which robots are doing all of our surgeries? Or, or do you think that there's always going to be a need for, um, you know, human-based manual uh, uh, procedures? Um, I, I think in the foreseeable future, um, you know, there's really no desire or, um, you know, uh, need to re replace the surgeon, you know, um, I, I don't think that's, that's the goal. Uh, also, you know, consider, you know, surgeons go uh, to so many years of very, very specialized training are amazing at their job. And there's, you know, so much patient to patient variation and, you know, decisions that you need to make. It's really hard to imagine that all of these could be done, you know, really, really well by, by a robotic system. Um, you know, I think there is a, 
potential for um, more autonomy and, uh, you know, doing uh, procedures um, in settings where there are no surgeons currently. So imagine like in a trauma scenario, you know, built into a emergency vehicle and you do a quick life-saving care mm. that is not a full surgery, but a small procedure like placing a, a catheter for, 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 you know, stopping a, an internal bleed, something like that, like a step down in difficulty, um, something that, you know, you could do where you don't compete against, you know, a, 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 you know, surgeons, but, uh, you know, do it in settings where there are currently no surgeons and no good options. <laughs> okay. Interesting. All right. Um, can, can patients today, I, I know the star robot is still, I, I guess in R and D stages or, or still development stages, I, I think. Um, but can, can patients today like to have their surgeries performed by, uh, a robot like, like the star robot or, uh, how does one even go about determining if that's an option? Um, yes, definitely. Um, so a lot of surgeries are done with robots like the Da Vinci in the teleoperated uh, fashion. Um, and uh, so, you know, it really depends on what kind of surgery it is. If you think about uh, prostate surgery, um, you know, uh, 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 hysterectomy, uh, these are done predominantly already today with a robot. Um, I think if you uh, look even at the websites of different urology, you know, centers, they advertise, you know, the, the robots there. So you can really see what kind of technology the different centers have. Um, and it's, you know, uh, really nice. Um, our star robot is uh, in preclinical studies right now. So we demonstrated the first uh, use in animals, uh, but we are still a few years away of, of doing a first in human study. Okay. So potentially two, three, four years from now, a, a patient might be able to um, opt to have a surgery performed by the STAR robot. Uh, yeah, we are working on transitioning this and uh, preparing the first in human uh, studies. So that would be the next step for us. Cool. And this is fully developed by Johns Hop Hopkins? Um, uh, so, yes. Uh, so the, uh, you know, the origin of the star robot, uh, comes from children's national hospital. That's where I was, uh, you know, before, uh, coming, uh, to, to Hopkins. So that's where we started. Um, and, uh, you know, then I was at university of Maryland. So did the academic work there and, uh, for the last two years at Johns Hopkins. How does how does that work? Uh, this might be you know outside of what you focus on, but I'm curious. How does uh, a, a medical device like the Star Robot work commercially if it's developed um, by Johns Hopkins or you know maybe a, a variety of different um, uh, clinical entities, hospital entities? Would would uh, would they just start licensing it out to? Uh, different facilities for use or, or does it get does that ip get transferred entirely to uh, some some sister company that then manufactures it and handles the business end of all of that because johns hopkins is i mean at the end of the day a, a hospital right not not necessarily a medical device manufacturer yeah great question um you know uh johns hopkins has uh uh, you know, great hospital, but then also fantastic engineering school. Uh, that's where, where, where I am, uh, and, uh, university. Um, so, you know, uh, we, uh, definitely, uh, realized that we don't want to just do academic work and really value translational aspects of our research. And so we have a large, um, you know, team that helps us with, uh, transfer of technology. 
Um, and that can go a couple of routes, either a licensing technology or, um, you know, doing startups. Uh, so, you know, uh, a lot of faculty, you know, have startups, uh, you know, work with students. And, and uh, so there are different routes. Um, the STAR patents, uh, you know, uh, the initial patents from uh, children's are licensed to a small company, um, Active uh, Surgical. Um, and, you know, there are uh, some other patents um, uh, after that. Okay, neat. And how did you get into the the, the, the hospital system? Um, a lot of medical device engineers, they'll, they'll go off and work for a medical device manufacturer like BD or Medtronic or Stryker. How did you end up at Johns Hopkins? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that, that is, was a little bit of a route for me. So I actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, studied, uh, in, uh, Germany, uh, then came to the U.S., uh, and, uh, my wife started medical school. So that really got me into the medical field more. Um, and I looked for, you know, research areas, uh, you know, in robotics and, uh, and then, uh, found Johns Hopkins in the medical robotics setting. Um, and after doing my PhD, um, I commercialized my PhD work with a small company in uh, Toronto in Canada. Um, and after doing that for a few years, I really realized I'm not built for, you know, just working in a company selling uh, equipment. I'm super excited about the early research, the conceptual mm. phase. And that's what dro uh, drove me back to academia. Um, and, you know, that route has then, you know, taken me to Children's National um, and then as a, you know, tenure track faculty, uh, first at Maryland and now at uh, Johns Hopkins. Wonderful. Okay. And what are some, some pros and cons of medical device engineering over some other industries in the engineering field? I find, uh, the reward amazing to do, you know, like helping, uh, patients, helping people. I, I, you know, uh, for my PhD, uh, work, uh, we did a robot for, uh, you know, prostate, uh, surgery. And I remember, you know, having lunch with a, with a patient where my wow. robot was used, you know, and that was such an amazing experience. So I, I, I think that is, is so much cooler than in other fields, right? So if you yeah. know, you can help somebody and, and that's, uh, that, that, that's incredible. Um, I, you know, um, also working, you know, with, with patients, doctors, you know, the whole healthcare aspect is, is, is so fascinating and, 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 and rich. Um, and also really interesting problems. So as a scientist and engineer, a really an exciting area to, to work in. Um, yeah. Well said. I, I, I'm imagining right now, like as an engineer, if I designed a, a cell phone case for someone and, and I saw them walking around with this cell phone case on their iPhone, I, I would probably think, oh, that's cool. That's what I designed, you know, and that would be neat. But to sit down with a patient who has had a, a, a operation performed on them with the device that you helped design and know that you have substantially increased their their um uh standard of of, of living um medically speaking what what an amazing feeling that must be uh, you, you said it exactly yeah that that's uh you know the best feeling you can have as an engineer i think <laughs> yeah yeah that's great. Well, what what was the you've talked about it a little bit already, but the path to becoming a medical device engineer is it, is it more or less the same as is getting into any other engineering field or are there any specific steps that you recommend engineers take to get into medical devices? 
Yeah, there are certainly uh, several routes um, for me specifically, you know, in the area of medical robotics. Uh, robotics in itself is already very multidisciplinary. So, you know, different fields, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, computer science, and then, of course, on the on the more biomedical side, biomedical engineering. So all different routes could lead, uh, you know, to uh, to becoming a medical roboticist. So, you know, um, yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, just different ways to 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 get there and different ways to to specialize. Um, but uh, and, uh, yeah, a fantastic field. <laughs> And I guess it, it doesn't hurt if you marry a physician, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Something definitely to emulate. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. Axel, um, uh, well, how, how can people get a hold of you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Axel Krieger. Uh, and then also, if you want to Google our uh, lab at Johns Hopkins, uh, it's the Immerse Lab. There's contact information, and I'm happy to get in touch. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been fascinating learning more about the STARS robot and uh, what, what your team is working on. Really, really cool stuff. It's it's almost the stuff of science fiction. In fact, I, I read a book a little while ago uh, called Project Hail Mary. You haven't heard of that book, have you? No, I haven't. Yeah. It, it was written by, I can't remember the author's name. It was written by the same author who, who wrote The Martian. Um, and uh, it, it's about this uh, guy who goes into outer space to save the world, basically. And there's there's a, uh, a, a basically a, a robotic um, doctor there, but it's it's like a six axis robot kind of thing, you know. And <laughs> as I was reading about the Stars robot, I was like, oh, that sounds just like the robot in this Project Hail Mary book. Anyway, it, <laughs> it, it feels like science fiction, I guess is is my point. It was very very cool. So thank you, so um, much. Thank you again so much for for spending some time and sharing about. Uh, your, your background and experience and, and about the uh, advances in medical robotics. Yeah, thanks for your interest. It was great chatting with you. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.